Well, I, you know, I, I keep looking out at our world, and you know what I see? I see a world that is drifting, right? I mean, it's just like you just feel this, this drift, and there's, we live in a world and a society that's filled with brokenness and bondage and, and just a lot of pain out there. And you might be one of those people who's going through that right now, or you certainly know somebody who is just experiencing deep and troubling pain. You know, the Bible says we live in a dry and thirsty land. And I love how it says about John the Baptist that he cried out in the wilderness. And that's a literal picture, but it's also a figurative picture, isn't it? Anytime we cry out the gospel, we're crying out in a wilderness, a desert, a dry and thirsty land where everyone is looking for food and water that goes far beyond what's in the cup and on the plate. But my biggest concern is not that society or culture is drifting. My biggest concern this morning, what's really on my heart, is that the church is caving. And there's this great leader. His name is Tom Rayner. He's the president and CEO of Lifeway uh, Ministry and Resources, which is kind of for us pastors and ministry leaders. It's a great resource place. But he, through careful data, he has added up that in the next 10 years, 100,000 churches in America will shut their doors and close forever. Now imagine that. There's 300,000 churches in America. And in 10 years, 100,000 churches will no longer exist. That means today, on the Lord's Day in America... Churches are gathering and they are dying and declining and losing their influence and losing their ability. And in 10 years, they're just not going to exist anymore. So with the population increase, with all that's going on in society, the churches are not going to be there that we need. We're not doing enough church planning. We're not reaching enough people. And Tom Rayner, in careful research, he gives us five reasons why Churches are declining and will be dead in 10 years. I'm going to give you only two of those reasons that are relevant for our study in the book of of Romans. The first reason he says that churches are dying is because churches no longer have theological roots. Christians are no longer being taught what the Christian faith is. Now, in some cases, you can go to the church and you can get good advice. Sometimes you can go to a church and you can find good principles or formulas. Sometimes you can go to church and you can find good religion. You can find a way to do works. You can find a way to feel like you're religious. But many churches do not go into the depths and the theological riches of the Christian gospel. The second reason that he gives for churches dying and that will be dead in the next 10 years is that churches are evangelistically anemic. Believers are no longer sharing their faith with their friends and their family and co-workers and so forth. In fact, you're seeing Christians withdraw more than engage in their culture. You're seeing Christians withdraw and no longer be missional with their culture. So imagine this, a church that's no longer going deep into theology and a church is no longer going out in outreach and evangelism. What's that add up to? A dead church in a dying culture. That's bad news. You're like, why'd you bring bad news and you're all depressing me and stuff and getting all preachy about it? Because I've got the good news. We are not dying, are we, Crosspoint? We are not about good advice. We are not about formulas. 
We are not about trying to give you some kind of like religious self-help, self-congratulatory, outward forms kind of religion. What we want to give to you is the riches and the depths and the soil of God's love and his grace in Jesus Christ that's revealed so we can be made right with God and transformed by his power in a way that we can't transform ourselves. And the book of Romans does two things. The book of Romans takes us into the depth of what we believe about God's gospel and his grace. And it calls us to shoot out with that gospel into the world. The book of Romans tells us that there are great theological truths to experience with our heart and our mind. So that we will shoot out of the soil of God's grace and go outward and expand let me tell you what Cross Point Church, what our mission statement is, all right? Are you ready for this? Now, I've changed the wording a little bit. I haven't changed the spirit of it or the truth of it, but I've changed the words a little bit, and I'll talk about this in the weeks to come. But listen to me. Cross Point Church exists to make more and better disciples for Jesus Christ. We exist to make more and better disciples for Jesus Christ. In other words, we want our roots to go deep so that we can bear fruit as better and growing disciples, and we want to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we want to be a multi-generational church that's reaching new generations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound wonderful? And in order to fuel that mission, I want to take us through Romans. Because what Paul says is, you want to make more and better disciples? Grow in your faith. You want to go far in missions, you need to go deep in your faith. You cannot, no, listen, let us rebuke in Jesus' name this whole idea of being a million miles wide and an inch deep with our faith. Let us renounce and rebuke nominal Christianity and casual Christianity, this kind of fake, superficial, shallow, thin, I'm sorry, I'm getting fired up, but you know what I'm saying. Let's get some attitude and go, you know what, I'm going to learn my faith. I'm going to learn the riches and the glory of the gospel of Jesus so I can go far for the glory of God. Don't you want to do that? So, we're going to get started. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. How can I go deeper to go farther? i got to learn this book, Romans. And today, I'm going to give you great, exciting, really encouraging background information. Everybody say background. I'm talking background because when you read a book in the Bible, you got to know the background before you even start. You got to know who the author is and what is the purpose behind any book you're reading in the Bible. Now, we know all scripture is breathed out by God, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is behind all authorship in the, in the Bible. But to know the human author is important for personality and context and what's happening and to hear the tone of the book. And so we start with the first, this is so easy today. I am just, this is, I'm making this way too easy. But number one, who is the author of the book of Romans? And you see it in verse one. Let's read it. Verse one, word one, Paul. All right, well. <laughs> let me read the whole verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, who is Paul? Let me tell you who Paul is. Paul is a sinner saved by grace. That's who Paul is. Paul is a sinner saved by grace. And he writes and composes this book in the year A.D. 57. Okay, where were you then? 
He writes from a city called Corinth, okay? A Greek city, Corinth. And he writes it from the city, and he's writing to Romans, and he's never met this church, and he's never met these Christians. They probably have heard of them, but he's never met them. Now, the question is, okay, tell me a little bit more about Paul. So take A.D. 57 and do a flashback 20 years, approximately 20 years. And when we first meet Paul in the Bible, we don't meet an apostle. We don't meet a great man of God. We don't meet a missionary. What we meet is an unbelieving Jewish man. In fact, when we first meet him in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we meet a savage, terrorist, hater of Jesus, hater of Christians, and haters of the church. You might remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was the first martyr in Christian history, he stands before the Jewish uh, leaders of Jerusalem called the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, and he stands before there and he tells them that Jesus has replaced the temple of God as the way to be right with God. They gnash their teeth at him. They get really, really upset because, watch this, religion bites. Can I get an amen? Amen. And what they do is they rise up against Stephen. They say, this man deserves to die because he says it's no, it's no longer the temple, but it's Jesus Christ that's the way to God. And so they take up stones and they go to stone him to death. And there was a young man there whose name at that time was known as Saul. And Saul was like, I'll hold your coats while you, while you really rear back and stone this guy to death. And so Saul, who we know now as Paul, held the coats and gave approval of the first Christian martyr in church history. Not a good guy. Acts chapter 8, we read that Saul went from house to house arresting Christians and taking them to jail. And by his own admission, in Acts chapter 22, let me read this for you. Acts chapter 22 and verse 4, Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Beloved, that means that he was the reason why Christians died for their faith. There are martyrs in heaven right now who are praising Jesus and asking Jesus to bring the second coming of judgment because they had to die for their faith. And some of those martyrs in heaven right now praising Jesus are the direct result of Saul, who is also Paul. Imagine that. You're like, well, how did this guy become a Christian? This least likely lost cause. How in the world did he become a Christian? I'll tell you how he became a Christian. Jesus showed up. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus beat him up. Can I get a hallelujah? (laughs) Saul had spent his whole life climbing up on this high horse of pride and arrogance. His whole life climbing up on the horse of self-righteousness. His whole life going up on the high horse of arrogance and self-congratulatory religious works. His whole life climbing up on this high horse of religious bigotry. And as he rode on that high horse, proud and lofty and high and lifted up as he imagined himself to be, persecuting Christians and killing them, Jesus showed up, who's the king of kings, and knocked him off that horse. And for all of us who have been prideful and arrogant in God's presence, no matter what we think, if you imagine that you can fight and be at enmity with God and stay up on that high horse, let me tell you something. 
First of all, I'm praying that Jesus will knock you off your high horse. It might hurt, but it's the best thing that could happen. My dad used to tell me, Joshua, and I always knew I was either in trouble or deeply loved in those moments when he said, Joshua, Joshua, the higher this mountain you climb, the further the fall, the more it's going to hurt. And Saul had climbed really high, and Jesus knocked him off his horse. And this proud, arrogant man needed help to even get into the city because he was blinded and he was hurt. And he was, he was confused and he had cried out, who are you? And Jesus said, I'm the one you are persecuting. Of course, he thought he was persecuting Christians. But in persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Jesus Christ. And Jesus sent Ananias to come and witness to him. And Ananias told him what had happened, what he had experienced. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 9 that it was like scales. In fact, it was literal scales, but also figurative scales that were lifted from his eyes. And he could see for the first time in his life, not only the world as God sees, it, but he could see that Jesus was the brightness and the glory and the very radiance of God's being. And so he believed in Jesus and he was baptized and he became a believer. And from that moment on, he went on a tear for the world. He was like, I got to tell everybody about Jesus. Everybody needs to come to Jesus to be healed. Everybody needs Jesus to get the righteousness of God. And he wrote 13 of 27 books in the Bible, in the New Testament. And he went on three missionary journeys and he traveled 13,400 miles. And by the end of the apostolic age, The number of Christians in the world was 500,000, and no doubt it was because of his missionary work. Imagine that. By the end of the apostolic age, 500,000 Christians. How many Christians did we start out with, beloved? Twelve. And really, eleven, because one of them betrayed Jesus. And really, ten, maybe quality, guys. Because Peter denied Jesus three times. And really no men because they all fled the cross except for sweet, sweet John. We started out with Jesus on a cross, John at the foot of the cross, and all those women that were there. We come into Acts 1 and we're like, there ain't no way this gig is going to make it. There is no way that this little, little movement of Jesus' followers in Jerusalem is going to spread to the world. But by the end of the apostolic age, 500,000 Christians... Of course, we ask ourselves, we ask ourselves an important question about our man Paul. We say, well, that's really neat that he got saved and became a Christian and Jesus knocked him off off his horse. But I'm kind of questioning the wisdom of God. Why would God save this guy? He was a terrorist. He was a horrible person, a horrible, horrible man. And why in the world would God save this horrible man? Couldn't he have chosen somebody else? And Paul tells us why. No doubt the early Christians wondered the same thing. It's really funny. If you read about, if you read through Acts, which I'm not going to do this morning, but if you read through Acts, you find out that when Paul first started going to churches after he got saved, they didn't want him there. You know what I'm saying? Like, look, dude, you were beating us up. And he's like, seriously, I'm saved. And they were like, sure, you're saved. You know what I mean? But why would God save him? He says here in 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 15. This is such a seminal verse on this very point I'm trying to make. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So why did God save Paul? So that he would be a monument to God's grace. So that he would be a monument to anybody. That God can save anyone. God's mercy and grace can reach down into the furthest deeps of of the pits of hell and pull anybody out of those fires and reconcile them to God. This means, Paul's very testimony means that there are no such things as lost causes. John MacArthur was the one who said, human failure is never final as long as God's grace is operational. Isn't that good news? I remember when we moved into our house in Washington and five years ago, we moved in and, and across the street was this house that hadn't been lived in. And it was a really sad house because the reason why it hadn't been lived in is because somebody had abandoned it as a result of divorce and just a broken life. And there was weeds all around it and it needed painting and it needed siding and it just, it was just an eyesore and it was right across, of course, you know, we, you know, this we had, you know, those, those problems you have in life, like, it looks so bad, you know, and we felt sorry for ourselves, you know what I mean? Um, but there, there was this house, and it was just dilapidated, and nobody lived in it, and it needed, needed to be mowed, and it needed all this, all this help. And guess what happened? A family moved in. And as soon as that family moved in, wouldn't you know it, that the lawn started getting mowed on a regular basis. New siding has gone up, new windows and then there was another house, Caddy Corner, like right here. And that house, too, hadn't been lived in for years. And it's dilapidated. It's really bad and weeds. And it's just a horrible. In fact, that was the house that my girls at the time said, Daddy, is a ghost living there? You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> and the family moved into that house just recently. In fact, a single man. And he started doing all this construction work. He's really working hard. And he's, he's putting new doors, new windows. And, and I thought, what a great picture of God's grace. You know, God's grace. God's grace. You know, God finds us and we're just, we're dilapidated and we're, we're needy. And we're... But you know, when God moves in, the junk has to move out, amen? When God moves in, remodeling happens. When God moves in, transformation happens. And if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. God is in the business of liberation. God is in the business of bringing light into the darkness. God is in the business of confronting us in our brokenness and then bringing healing to our lives. And that means that human failure is never final as long as God's grace is operational. And everything that Paul did, everything he wrote, every theological concept he ever spoke, behind it was this testimony. You too can be saved. You too can be made right with God. If God can save me, he can save anyone. If God can transform my life... He can transform anybody's life. And so you see, when we come to Paul, I don't want you to look at Paul and go, you know, of course he wrote Romans because he was so smart and he could have gotten his dissertation and PhD had gone to seminary and been a professor and he was so brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant Pharisee. No, no, no. The only reason God chose him to write Romans is because he was a sinner saved by grace. Let me tell you something. He's like every hero in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses, David, Esther. It doesn't matter who you pick. You pick any of those people. And what you're going to find is that when God found them, they were broken. They were not heroes. And I can do this because I'm a man of God. And I'm just going to show up and watch 
Watch God watch me do these great heroic things. Every single person God used in the Bible was a sinner saved by grace. And God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Can I get an amen? And there's nobody that stands as a preacher or as a member in a church or in a life group or serving in the greeting ministry that's there because God really, really needs them. The only reason we're here as a church, the only reason I'm here preaching as a preacher is because we're sinners saved by grace. And we are beggars showing other beggars where to get some bread. And that has to be our disposition. When the world is drifting and society is falling apart and there's all these problems with the world, we don't look at the world and throw our stones and say, why don't you be like us? We get in that world and say, God's love can change your life because it changed mine. We will not be those kinds of Christians, beloved, where we're sitting there looking at everybody and judging them. We will come low and humble service knowing that we are sinners saved by grace and we will offer to them the greatest news in the world that anyone can be made right with God. Anyone can have the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul wrote the book of Romans. He's not trying to make you great theologians. He's trying to make you great missionaries. He's not going to heal you. God's going to heal you. God's going to heal you. And then God's going to send you to be a healer. God's going to forgive you. And then he's going to send you to be a forgiver. Found people, find people. Discipled people, disciple people. Christian people, go make Christians. That's what we do. And we're never going to get to a place in our life where we're like, you know what, I think we have enough Christians in the world. Let's just sit back and have a really nice country club church and really feel good about each other because we're all really good friends after all. And let us sit in our homes and eat together and be really proud. And let's talk about how bad politics is all the time. How about talking about how you can get the word of Jesus out so you can save people from bad politics? Can I get an amen? This is on video, man. This will go viral. Go viral, baby. You know what I'm saying? Man, trick politics. You're a missionary. This ain't your home. You're on your way to glory. And your job on the way to glory is to be like Paul. I'm going to go from nation to nation. I'm going to go from tribe to tribe. I'm going to go neighbor to neighbor. I'm going to memorize my, my Bible verse that Pastor Josh gave me to memorize. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes, I'm going to memorize that Bible verse. I'm going to take my invite card. I'm going to go out as a missionary. I'm going to be a sinner saved by grace who's showing the world how to be right with God. That's what I'm going to do. Paul. Is a sinner saved by grace. Now this sets us up. This sets us up. They say, well, you've told me about this author. You've told me about all he's done and who he was. So what was his purpose in writing the book of Romans? This is an important question. And a greatly debated question, by the way, through the history of interpretation. But I'm going to say, in general, you can really sum it up like this. You can sum it up like this. That the purpose of Romans, I'm going to, not I'm going to use a lawyer's term, I'm going to argue, I'm going to persuade you, the purpose of Romans is missions. That might surprise some of you, it's missions. And let me give you four pieces of evidence that really points to this from the text itself. And the text is king when it comes to interpretation, we're not interested in our own ideas, we're interested in what the text is telling us and what the author told us in the text. We call that authorial intent. And when you come to the authorial intent, there's several passages that might indicate 
that really it's missions that's the driving purpose behind this letter. Go to Romans chapter 15, please, and read with me Romans 15, starting in verse 23. Romans 15 and verse 23. And I want you to look at this very carefully now and allow me to teach you for a moment. Romans 15 verse 23 says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, you could circle that little phrase, these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Skip down to verse 28. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now what we have is a... a, a, geographical point being made by Paul. You can see it there. He says, I'm done in these regions. See that? While you're looking down, let me take some water because I'm about to really hack up. It's going to sound really gross unless I do, okay? Much better. He says, these regions, I have longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Everybody say Spain. Spain. All right, now I'm about to teach you some great things. You ready for it? What's behind the curtain? It's a map. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry about that, Addie. I almost knocked down your guitar. This is a map. Now, when he says, I'm done in these regions, what I want to show you from this map is what he means by these regions. This is very important geography. He's writing the book of Romans, AD 57, from Corinth right there. His sending church as a missionary is the church in Antioch, which you can read about in Acts chapter 13. That's when the church in Antioch, they pray over him, and they send him and Barnabas out. And what he had done in his three missionary journeys, recorded for us in Acts, is he had gone in these regions, being Asia Minor. So you got like Ephesus here, you got Philippi, you got Thessalonica. So you got the book of Philippians, books of Thessalonians, Ephesus, and then, of course, Corinth. And so what his pattern was is he would go, and you all have seen Bible maps before. I mean, you look in the back of your Bible, and you've got these circles, and you, he keeps coming back. He'd come back to Antioch and report. Then he'd go back out. He'd be like going back out. And then he'd come back. He'd report to Antioch, and that was his home church. And those were the regions that God had called him to go to was these regions. Now, what he's saying in Romans chapter 15 is he's saying, I feel like God's wrapped up my ministry in these regions right here. And I have a dream. I have a strategic dream and vision. And my strategic dream and vision is to leave these regions and go where? To Spain, which is right there. Now, here's the cool thing. You can look up Isaiah 66, verse 19, sometime on your own. And there you will see a prophecy by Isaiah where he says that the glory of God will reach the nations as far away as Tarshish. And Tarshish is Spain. And I believe that Paul had that little text in his mind, and he dreamed about it every night. And he was like, I'm going to fulfill that prophecy of Isaiah to go to all the nations as far as Tarshish, which for him would be Spain. But here's the practical problem. If this is his home church that he's reporting to and that's supporting him, it's going to be kind of hard to do what he's been doing, which is go all the way to Spain and then come all the way back to Antioch, go all the way to Spain, 
and then come back to Antioch. He obviously can't do that anymore. If he's going to have a vision for a new region, guess what he needs? A new church. He doesn't know this church in Rome, but he wants to get to know them. Why? Because he says, here is Rome. And if I have a home church that's sending me out as a missionary that's in Rome, well, then I can do in Spain what I've done in these regions. In other words, beloved, what you have in your hands right now in the book of Romans is you have an epic missionary fundraising letter that's also asking for a deep partnership that would be similar to his partnership to the church in Antioch. And not only that, not only do you have the map, you've got the phrase and a really key word. In fact, I want you to look at it one more time just so I can really undergird the point I'm trying to make. But look at verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped, and you should circle that word helped, on my journey there by you once I have joyed your company for a while. That word helped is a technical term. It's a technical Greek word that was used for missionaries, and the way missionaries used it was to be helped on their missionary journeys. And it was used, for example... If I'm a missionary and I need your help, and I would use the Greek word that's used there for help, I would come to you and say, help, and you would automatically know that by that word I meant I need logistical help, like maybe you can help me with the terrain. Romans would know the terrain of Spain and how to get there more than Paul would. I need your help logistically with maps. I need, I need routes and roads to know, to, to know how to go. I need help in terms of anybody want to come with me? You want to come on a missionary journey with me? I need some missionaries. I need a team of people to go to Spain with me. And of course, all missionaries need what? Help financially. They need resources. Paul is ultimately asking them, I need maps. I need money. I need people. I need help. You're going to become my new Antioch. And I need your resources and supports and prayers and people and maps and everything I need to make this vision come alive. Now listen to me, beloved. If you think about it in that way then why is Paul going so deep into the theology of the gospel? Why does he go so deep into Jewish-Gentile relationships? Why does he go so deep into our citizenship? Why does he go so deep into our morality? So that these Christians would get so fired up about the theology of the gospel and the goodness of the gospel that they would be like, count me in. I want to give you my money. I want to give you our support. The gospel is too important not to reach the world. And so, In the history of interpretation, here's what's happened. People have come to Romans. And rightly do they see it as the greatest Christian theological book that we have. It teaches you everything you need to know about the Christian faith. And for years, the idea was that the purpose of the book was just to be a theological treatise. It was just theology. Well, since I've got your attention, I'll just break down Calvinism for you. You know what I mean? Like... But in fact, what he's doing is he's saying, I want your roots to go deep into the theology of the gospel. And I want you to experience it. The Holy Spirit's pouring out as the love of God into your heart. Romans 5, 5. Romans 8, 16. The Holy Spirit's bearing witness to your spirit that you are sons of God, that you are children of God. The Holy Spirit is rising up in you. Not a spirit of slavery, but a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, a spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit wants you to experience and to know justification and sanctification and election and predestination and redemption and glorification and ultimately how to pay taxes, how to love one another in the church. But the whole reason that's driving that theology is so that Christians would say, this is so great. The world needs this truth. 
and I'm going to support. This is it. We are missionaries. That is the purpose, you see, behind all of the theological themes. Not only that, but let me show you a couple other things to undergird this very point. There are what we call the bookends of the book of Romans, which is there's a front bookend and a back bookend, which is the opening statement. And the last statement of Romans points to this purpose as well. Go to Romans chapter 1. I know I'm making you go back and forth in Romans here today. Um, it, it, you know, how, have you ever been to a Methodist church where they make you sit down and then stand up and sit down and then stand up? Anybody been to a Methodist church? Nobody. Okay. Sherry and I, we met, converted, and married in a Methodist church. We know it well. And I'm kind of making you do Methodism with a Bible. Go to the front, to the back, to the front. Romans 1, let me read this in verses 2 and following. This is the front bookend of the book of Romans, also pointing to mission. He says that the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh... And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith, there it is, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You see that phrase, why does He exist? To bring about the obedience of faith. Among all the nations. Now that sounds to me like the Great Commission when Jesus said in Matthew 28 verses 18 and 20. I want you to go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now take your Bibles and go to the back of Romans. Romans chapter 16. And look at the doxology. So from the salutation to the doxology. And Romans 16 and verses 25 and following, but I'll start in verse 26 for the sake of brevity. He says, But the gospel has now been disclosed and through prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. Love that phrase. What's the command of the eternal God? To take the gospel to all the nations. To bring about... The obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, even his salutation, doxology, he's saying, hey, listen, we exist. I exist. Apostleship exists. My ministry exists. My teaching ministry exists so that the gospel will go out to all the nations to bring about the obedience of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the final thing is... It's our theme verses. It's our memorizing verses. Go back to the front of Romans one more time. Romans chapter 1. See, I told you. Romans chapter 1. And look at the theme of the book of Romans, which undergirds the purpose I'm right now trying to persuade you about. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And I'm not going to go into details on that right now because we're going to study that passage later on. But here's the thing. Here's what he's saying. The righteousness of God is offered as a gift to all who believe in Jesus Christ. That means, how, how is a person made right with God? 
Isaiah 64 says we can't come up with our own righteousness, can we? In fact, our righteousness adds up to filthy rags. Our righteousness is not good enough. I can be as religious, as moral as I want to be, and the only thing I have to offer in my own righteousness is nothing but filthy rags in the presence of God. So the only way I can be made righteous is if God gives me his righteousness, and Paul is saying everyone can believe, and guess what? Guess what? The righteousness of God is available to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. It is a gift of God for everyone who believes. Even that theme of the righteousness of God, which I think the word righteousness is used 37 times in the book of Romans. So it's a key word. It's a key theme, the righteousness of God. But even the way he talks about it is he says, don't you see that anyone who believes can be saved from the wrath of God? Anyone who believes can come and become a part of God's people. Therefore, we got to go. We got to go tell them, he says in Romans chapter 10. How can they believe if they don't have a preacher? How can they believe if how beautiful are the feet, he says, that bring the good news of the gospel? How beautiful are the feet that are willing to go out to the world and offer this message to everyone who believes, to call on everybody, to invite everybody. Hey, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and you can be saved too. All you got to do is believe in Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the righteousness of God. You see, his purpose is missions. Everything this man did was mission. That's all he did. He he didn't define discipleship in any other way. He didn't didn't compartmentalize like, well, there's discipleship and then there's evangelism. No, he said discipleship is evangelism and evangelism is discipleship. It just is. We exist to make more and better disciples for Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul wanted to get the Romans fired up. And that's why we are studying the book of Romans. You know, I, I remember I went on a missions trip uh, to Uganda, Africa, uh, many years ago with my brother. He's real passionate about it, and, and so I went on this mission trip, which was really funny because, you, know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm such a preppy guy. I, you know, I need Starbucks and air conditioning, you know what I'm saying? I'm just a big wimp, all right? And so anyways, I, got, I get over there to Uganda, and, and we served in this village. And in Africa, at least my experience was, is that the heat in Africa is more of a dry heat. There's no humidity there. So it's really hot. But it, like, if you're out in the sun, you feel it on the skin. It's hot. It was when we were there. But the moment you step into shade, it's like, it's like God's air conditioner. You know what I mean? So guess where I did all of my work for that village? <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'll tell you guys what. I'll tell you what. I'll be over here in the shade. You just bring stuff to me, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. You know, and the little African children would be like, Joshy, Joshy, and they come over to me, and I'd be like, come out and play soccer. I was like, you know what? I'll watch from the shade. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was in the shade. But in this village, it was like a picture. It was like this picture. And the picture uh, 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 that I'm, I'm trying to describe is that in the middle of this village, there was one gigantic tree. Enormous. Everything else, it was almost... It was like a desert, but it was like one big tree in the village. And it went really tall, and the shade expanded a long way so that we could congregate quite a bit of people under the shade of this tree. And what I remember thinking about that tree is, man, this tree is so big, and its shade extends so far, I bet you that its roots go down really deep. I bet you that its roots go down really far. I bet you if I could see underneath the ground, man, that, that underneath the ground, the, the, the roots would be maybe even more abundant than what I'm seeing in this tree. And it reminds me of a principle. The deeper you go in the rich soil of God's grace, 
the further up you're going to go in worship and the further out you're going to go providing shade. And everybody in your life is out in a dry and thirsty land and they're hot and they're looking for relief. And what this drifting world needs is not a church that caves or compromises, but has depth and roots and goes down deep so that we'll go up high and bear fruit and we'll go out far and expand our influence for Jesus Christ. You know, the question that we're going to ask is, what's your map? What's your map? What's your plan, man? What's your strategy? How are you reaching people? How are you demonstrating that you're not ashamed of the gospel and you actually believe that it's the power of God for salvation? How are you reaching out and and equipping yourself? You're going to get out of this study what you put into it, I promise you. And I'm going to give you some really great teaching. But you got to say, hey, God, give me a map. Give me a heart. Give me fuel for mission. And theology that we get in Romans is fuel for mission. That's why we're studying. So everything we look at in this book, we're looking at it to say, God, give us fuel. So we don't want to be one of those hundred thousands dying churches in the next 10 years. We don't want to lack those, that depth and lack that evangelistic zeal. We want to have a heart. You know, for some of you, man, you just need to celebrate your salvation and rehearse your testimony. You're forgiven. God loves you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Celebrate that. Let's pray about that right now.